This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there, folks, and thank you for listening to the show. I'm Joanna. I'm Nate, and this is Stranger Than. We've done it. This time, we both stuck to a theme. That is amazing. It is amazing. Even I did it. I did it. I just thought, and I did it. It was... It was something else. Something else. Well, today I have some articles to read about creepy Christmas denizens. And what do you have for us, Joanna? I have a couple of just weird Christmas stories. One is a mystery surrounding one of the most famous... Christmas poems out there, and then uh, some UFO shit that happened on Christmas Day wow. in England in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't I start us out with an article, and then we'll uh, go on to you and, uh, you know, kind of go back and forth. We'll do a little back and forth thing on our, back and our forth. Christmas-themed episode. That's right. This article is from Ripley's.com. The Terrible Tale of Hans Trapp, The Christmas Scarecrow. Oh. The holidays are seen as a time of peace, goodwill, and generosity. We gather with friends and family, share gifts, and eat huge, decadent meals with all the trimmings. At the root of all of these celebrations, however, is a very dark and grim past. The legend of St. Nicholas, Santa Claus himself, began with the tale of the Greek bishop of Myrna, a Roman town in Turkey in the late 3rd to early 4th century. As one fantastical story goes, Bishop Nicholas once discovered that an innkeeper had murdered three children and cut their bodies into pieces. And yet, Nicholas was still able to revive them. Along with the many good deeds of this zealous Christian in a time of heavy persecution, these tales cemented Nicholas's place as a saint, a protector of children, and a generous gift-giver. If Santa Claus himself can revive the dead, though, wait until you meet the fearsome anti-Santa Hans Trapp, the Christmas Scarecrow. 
Who was Hans Tropp? For as long as there has been a jolly old Saint Nick providing gifts for well-behaved children, there has been someone, or something, else filling the role of his counterpart, punishing the naughty ones. These fearsome figures range from the, range from the iconic horned Krampus to Perta, the shape-shifting Christmas witch who fills disobedient children's bellies with straw. The terrifying Hans Tropp is possibly the worst of all, though. One story in particular describes an instance in which he stabbed a child, sliced him into tiny pieces, and cooked and ate his flesh. All the trimmings. <laughs> the legend of the Christmas Scarecrow is well known in the French regions of Alsace and Lorraine. Hans Tropp, according to the story, lived in the 1400s, a rich, powerful, and merciless man who is feared by the people of Alsace. His thirst for power was so great that he turned to deals with the devil to enhance his power and status. Hearing of this, the Pope himself excommunicated Trop, which, after which he was banished from Alsace and his wealth and lands confiscated, all of which is nothing compared to what came next. Trop was reduced to constructing a makeshift home in the mountains of Bavaria in Germany, and the legend goes on. Here, he continues to brood, and his evil desires festered. He developed a hankering to try the taste of human flesh. Finally, he became, he became the dreaded Christmas scarecrow, adorned in straw as a disguise. He waited on lonely roads for a victim. A boy aged around ten happened across his path one day, and Trapp stabbed the unfortunate shepherd's boy with a vicious, sharp stick. With the boy safely back at his lair, Trapp sliced it into pieces and roasted it before he could eat. But before he could eat, he was struck by, divine, by a divine lightning bolt and killed. Today, naughty children are warned that Hans Tropp's spirit lingers on and he may visit them in his scarecrow disguise if they don't mend their ways. A popular boogeyman and a frightening tall tale, you may think, but nothing more than that. Sadly, though, we've got some bad news. The story seems to have been inspired by the incredible true tale of a real person. Hans von Trotha was a knight who lived from 1450 to 1503. He commanded two castles in the Palatine territory, French-German territory back in the day, but became embroiled in an argument over the church with the church over the property in one of them. The abbot would not concede certain properties to von Trotha, so the embittered knight stopped the supply of water to the nearby town of Weisenberg with a dam. In retaliation, the, the abbot had the dam destroyed, which flooded the villagers' homes and businesses. The dispute continued until, just as with Hans Trapp, the knight was summoned by the Pope himself and excommunicated. While there's no record of von Trotha turning to cannibalism and hunting children while dressed as a scarecrow, what we know of Hans von Trotha's life is also extraordinary. Even the emperor's intervention wasn't enough to put a stop to the knight's battling with the abbot of Weisenberry Abbey which is exactly why Pope Innocent VIII came into the picture in the first place. On his summoning to successor Alexander VI's papal court, von Trotha refused to attend. Instead, he sent a letter to the Pope, which expounded on von Trotha's faith while accusing the Pope all, of all manner of impure acts. <laughs> <laughs> Even excommunicated, the wily von Trotha did well for himself, serving the French royal court. He is given the Chevalier d'Or by King Louis XII. On his death, all charges against him were, re were reversed and forgiven. 
Something of his notoriety lived on, though, and not only in Hans Trop. Local legends also referred to him as the Black Knight, a formidable specter that was also sometimes said to accompany Santa Claus and punish children who were unworthy of gifts. So that's pretty awesome. I think it's funny that the guy was just like, hey, fuck you, Pope. Right, I'm going to write you an angry letter. Like The Pope's like, you know, come here so I can excommunicate you. And he's like, you're a bitch and you fuck dogs or something. I don't know. (laughs) But that's... Probably. Yeah, I mean, mean, something similar, I'm sure. And then after he died, they're like, all right, well, you're, you're fine, I guess. No big, no biggie. But he gets, he gets two things. You know, he gets the, the Hans Trop, the Christmas uh, Scarecrow, which it reminds me, that's a very Doctor Who sort of scenario there. And, yes. uh, and then he also gets to be a Black Knight that punishes children, hangs out with Santa and punishes children, which would be, you know, yes. I mean. Those who are not worthy of a gift. Some naughty little bastards. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's some fucking spoiled-ass awful kids out there. That's very true. And Hans... And if any of those spoiled kids are listening, Hans, Tro- Hans Trop is going to get you. That's right. Well, that also did... That last article did mention Perkta, the Christmas witch, so I may as well just carry on, you know? And uh, The one who, who would stuff bellies with straw? Yes. Frau Perkta, the terrifying Christmas witch. This is an article from Vintage News Daily. Frau Perkta, also known as Berkta or Bertha, has also been called Spinstubenfrau or Spinning Room Lady. She is often depicted with a beaked nose made of iron, dressed in rags, perhaps carrying a cane, and generally resembles a decrepit old crone. But this old crone packs a mighty wallop and carries a long knife hidden under her skirt. In the folklore of Bavaria and Austria, Perkta was said to roam the countryside at midwinter and to enter homes during the twelve days before Christmas and Epiphany, especially on the twelfth night. She would know whether the children and young servants of the household had behaved well and worked hard all year. If they had, they might find a small silver coin the next day, in a shoe or a pail. If they had not, she would slit their bellies open, remove their stomachs and guts, and stuff the hole with straws and pebbles. Oh, well, that's a pretty harsh punishment for not doing your chores. Seriously. She was particularly concerned to see that girls had spun the whole of their allotted portion of flax or wool during the year. She would also slit people's bellies open and stuff them with straw if they ate something on the night of her feast day other than the traditional meal of fish and gruel, which sounds absolutely lovely. I love fish and gruel night. Is that, that's not your, and that's a feast day? The tradition of meat, I mean, that's got, fish and gruel doesn't sound like much of a feast. Like, I like some fish, sure, but this sounds to me like it's not good fish. It's just like, like boiled fish and gruel. Yeah, it's something fucking gross. Fish heads and uh, oatmeal, basically. Not even good oatmeal. No, no, shit oatmeal. Snotty oatmeal. Yeah, you don't, you don't want no, none of this. I want some more kind of stuff. None of that at all. And then again, you know, the common theme with a lot of these that we, you know, talked about last year and you know this year a little bit is getting your shit done, getting your fucking work done. You right. finish your work by this time because you can't, can't go. 
shave a sheep and make wool in this weather? I mean, no. come on. Better have already been done. That flax better have been fucking spun. Yep. God damn it. God Otherwise, damn it. You're getting your guts ripped out and <laughs> your body cavity stuffed with straw. <laughs> and then also, I mean, if you don't get a new any new clothes and you don't wear said new clothes, then that Christmas cat will get you. The That's Yule right. cat? Yeah, the Yule mm-hmm. cat. That's what it is. If you're not wearing your new clothes, Yule cat's going to get you. Why don't you uh, let us in on what's going on for you there, Joanna? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, I'm going to lighten it up a little bit. Let's talk about one of the most beloved Christmas poems of all time. Known now as The Night Before Christmas, or Twas the Night Before Christmas. Oh, yeah, yeah, the one with the mice and that fat guy. That's right. And why don't I just go ahead and read the poem to you. Originally, when it was first published, it was called Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It does. (laughs) And it was first published in the New York's Troy Sentinel newspaper on December 23rd of 1823. That's my sister's birthday. Not the 1823 part, but the the December 23rd part. That's a hard birthday to have. Those birthdays are right around Christmas time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, My family was always pretty good about not mixing the two up. Like one of our other cousins, his birthday is on Christmas Day. And so there's always very specific, like, okay, this is your Christmas things and here's your birthday things. And now that, Mm -hmm. you know, they're all adults, it doesn't fucking matter. You're like, you whatever, you old bastard. Pay your taxes. Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters, and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes did appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer, with a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment he must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his courses they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer, and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner, and Blitzen. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away all. As leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they met with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop, the courses they flew, with a sleigh full of toys and St. Nicholas too. And then in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. 
As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney, St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was all dressed in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry, his cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. That was lovely. Wasn't it, though? <laughs> you know, I always, like, I have, like, the first few verses, like, seared into my brain. But all the rest of that stuff, except for, like, the end, the, you know, when people usually say Merry Christmas. Right. Depends where you are. Happy Christmas. Depends on where you are. But except for, that, that la- like, the first few lines and the last line, I don't know any of that stuff in between. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know some of it. I've heard it before. So, I mean, I knew some of it. Yeah. I just feel like it's always kind of referenced and like maybe like the first like few lines yeah. are done and then like it just like nothing from there. <laughs> when it's parodied or like used in, in popular media, yes. they always just do yeah. the beginning and then like do whatever else they want to do. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently there is a big debate over who wrote this beloved poem really? so long ago. As I said, it was first published on December 23rd, 1823, and it wouldn't be until 1844 that someone would take credit for them, and that would be Clement Clark Moore. However, there are many people that believe the true author of the poem was Henry Livingston Jr., And Henry Livingston Jr. died in 1828, so many years before Moore claimed the poem as his own. Now, allegedly, Moore had written it as a Christmas present for his two daughters, and somebody, like a, a family friend, had sent it into the newspaper, but he hadn't wanted to claim credit for it because he didn't think it was very, uh, like, you know, scholarly. He was a rather serious guy. Oh, right, right. Uh, he now did, he did tell the New York Historical Society that his vision of Santa Claus was that of a, quote, portly, robustened Dutchman in the neighborhood end quote that was like he knew a guy who was a, a rather oh i fat, see yeah. jolly dutchman in his neighborhood and that was his inspiration for the santa claus or the saint nick in the poem 
But those that would argue that Henry Livingston Jr. actually wrote the poem, they claim that it goes back to 1807 when he used to tell his children the same poem many years before it was published. And the reason that some think that it might have been Henry Livingston Jr. instead of Clement Clark Moore is because the original poem was the the names of the reindeer was it was actually originally Dunder and Blixen and it only became Donner or Donder and Blitzen because of a printer's error. Oh really? And when Moore was writing out copies of the poem many years after, he did the same error as what the original printer had done. Which would indicate that he had read it in the newspaper. Right. And then years later claimed that it was one of his own. Right. And the interesting things that is that the words Dunder and Blixem are actually Dutch for thunder and lightning. Oh. And uh, Moore did not speak any Dutch, but Livingston Jr. did. Oh, yeah. So... It's it's a big argument. There's been many papers written about it. There, I think there's even like an entire book written on this whole argument as really? to like wow. who it is. Yeah, because some people are like, you know, no, there's no what, there's no evidence that uh, Henry Livingston Jr. wrote this. He never claimed it. He, and I mean, he died in in 1828 before uh, Moore ever uh, took credit for it. So it wasn't like he was around to like argue and be like, actually dude, that was my fucking poem. Yeah, I wrote that on a napkin in a bar in St. Louis. <laughs> right. But so many people just think it was just so not Moore's style. Um, yeah. That they, they think it was Henry Livingston Jr. And then of course there's the whole like, you know, naming of the reindeer and the fact that the words are, are probably Dutch in origin. Um, and you know, more than didn't know any Dutch, uh, they, his living engineer's great, 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 great granddaughter, uh, woman, Mary Van Dusen. She has like a whole website dedicated to trying to, um, bring an end to the debate and have her, you know, five times great grandfather uh, yeah. uh given given the credit that he that deserves so, so sorely deserved yeah. <laughs> for writing the poem but as many scholars have pointed out it is probably something that is never going to actually you know we can debate it back and forth as much as you want but it's nothing There's, that's actually yeah. ever going to be resolved since it was so long ago and we don't have time travel basically so yes not which, is, be... which is unfortunate so yeah i mean i don't think we so, necessarily can uh, the debate over who well. wrote <laughs> who wrote an account of a visit from saint nicholas is going to remain, remain a mystery a, a holiday mystery Yes. <laughs> well, I'll be damned. Yeah. I didn't realize that that was such a uh, contentious thing. It, yeah. Who knew? Yeah. Psh, not I. Well, how about we tell you about a little creature called the Tomty? This is from Sweden.org. 
In Sweden, there is the nice, nicer, or tomti. The tomti is reputed to safeguard the farmer and his family, as well as the land the farmer owned or worked on against any misfortune. It was especially during the night that the tomti was actively being protective. In ancient times, the tomti had links to the original inhabitor of the farm, as the tomti was believed to be the soul of that man. During early Christianization, it was frightful accusation to have been linked to having a tomti on your farm. A neighborhood farmer could be jealous of his neighbor's wealth and accuse the prospering farmer of keeping a tomti. This carried huge ramifications as the now accused was linked to the devil as a tomti at the time was considered heathen. Generally, the tomti has in history been a solitary character, not social. The belief in the Tomti was widespread in Scandinavian countries, and to this day, Sweden still has stories of him. The physical appearance of a Tomti is considered to be extremely short, and no taller than half the size of a full-grown human. He is elderly, with a long beard, and dresses in farmer's clothing. Despite his small size, he possesses surmountable strength. The protection the Tomti offered could be retreated, as it is, as it is not too hard to offend him. Two general ways to irk and anger the Tomti are to change things as a Tomti is a traditionalist and does not like the way things are done on a farm to be changed. The other general way is to disrespect the farm by swearing, being rude, and mistreating animals. It is customary to express acknowledgement of the Tomti by leaving him a bowl of porridge on Christmas Eve. This is also a form of ancestral worship as the Tomti has been linked to the soul of the dead. The Tomti is reputed to especially favor a small cut of butter on top of his porridge. Various tales express how the Tomti would seek revenge if he did not get his porridge by running away and leaving his role as protector or by causing some misfortune or havoc on the farm. A truly angry Tomti has the ability to drive people mad or impart a poisonous bite that may be fatal. The form of the Tomti, emerged in the late 1800s, would be known as the Jultomti. Jultomti has been associated with bringing Christmas gifts to the family home at Christmas time. Today, the Tomti still has his traditional characteristics, yet the modern form has become well-marketed. The height of the Tomti is still short, yet sometimes he's viewed as adult size. His desire to remain hidden from humans still exists, as well as his magical skills. Unlike Santa Claus, the Tomti uses the front door, and in Sweden he lives in a nearby forest. The Tomti is not overweight, and if he does have reindeer pulling his sleigh, the reindeer do not fly. He basically looks like... A little Santa Claus. Long beard, white hair, you know, a little red hat. Farmer. Like a gnome? Yeah, like a gnome, like a little gnome guy, except he's not necessarily like we as fuck, like living in mushrooms and shit like gnomes. You know, they could be a little bit taller. And, uh, you know, they use the front door, which is good. I find using the front door is a little bit more convenient, less off-putting when you witness it. Yeah, always better to go through the front door. Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting how this little gnome-type figure is was used to basically uh, accuse someone of cheating. Yeah, well, I mean, essentially, it was it was like a it was like telling someone that they're a witch. Yeah. You know, like, oh, they keep one of these Tomtis here. And like, oh, well, shit. That's the fucking devil, so fuck you. Right. His farm's better than mine, but it's only because he's got a Tomty. Yeah, pretty much. 
<laughs> and that's crazy. I mean, they bite you and they poison you. That's fucking. That's uh. And they're super sensitive to like yeah, how you act and yeah. and uh, the way you do things. You can't you can't change the routine. No, no, do not. They're they're very, very conservative like ways. that. Yes. <laughs> well, why don't you give us some more of uh, the wackiness you've got here? All right. Well, before I get into that, before I forget and I'm an asshole about it for the previous story, uh, my sources were www.cbc.ca and listverse.com. Now, this article, I'm going to read to you guys is by one Beth Coleman at mentalfloss.com. And it's entitled, When the Warminster Thing Terrorized a Small English Town. Ooh. It's published on December 8th, 2020. At 1.25 a.m. on Christmas 1964, resident Mildred Head woke with a start. Her ceiling, she later told local journalist Arthur Shuttlewood, had come alive with strange sounds lashing at the roof. It sounded like twigs brushing against the tiles and got louder and louder until it reverberated like giant hailstones. Had got out of bed and to look out the window but found nothing there. She did, however, hear another noise, a humming sound that grew louder before fainting to a faint whisper. It was just the start of what would become a decades-long mystery and string of UFO sightings known around the world as the Warminster Thing. A few hours later, the soldiers at the nearby Nook Army Camp base were awoken by what sounded like a huge chimney stack from the main block ripped from the rooftop, then scattered across the whole camp. At 6.30 a.m., Roger Rump and his wife were stirred by a similar noise. They described it as sounding like, quote, the 5,000 tiles on our roof being ripped off and then put back on again with an enormous clatter, end quote. At around the same time, Marjorie Bai was walking to church when she was thrown to the ground by the force of quote, savage sound waves, end quote. In total, more than 30 individuals reported hearing mysterious noises that Christmas morning, and there was more to come. Strange things continue to happen in Warminster, a town just over 15 miles from Stonehenge, in the new year. In February 1965, an entire flock of pigeons suddenly died. The following month, three families heard loud noises coming from above their houses, their roofs and windows shaking with the force. And in June, the Warminster residents began to see unidentified objects flying through the sky. Description of the UFOs vary from person to person, with one describing what they saw as cigar-shaped and covered with winking bright lights, and another described it as twin red-hot pokers hanging downwards, one on top of the other, with a black space in between. 
The unusual events began to receive national attention, and people flocked to Warminster, hoping to get a glimpse of the thing. Over the August bank holiday of 1965, an estimated 8,000 people descended on the small town. The following month, when resident Gordon Faulkner claimed to have captured a photo of the UFO, the Daily Mirror published the picture, garnering even more publicity for Warminster. By that time, the news had even made its way stateside with newspapers as far as California reporting on the eerie events in the sleepy market town. Sightings and unexplained noises continued intermittently over the coming years, ranging from a ball of crimson light in the sky to a terrible droning sound that made the witnesses' floor and bed shake. Interest in the mysterious phenomenon remains strong. In 1966, the BBC filmed Pie in the Sky, a documentary about the events. Shuttlewood penned several books on the subject, while a local UFO enthusiast named Ken Rogers began publishing the Warminster UFO newsletter. But by the early 1970s, sightings of the Warminster thing began to decline, and with them the number of curious visitors that had once swarmed the town. Even Shuttlewood, who had become a figurehead of the phenomenon, had retired from skywatching due to ill health. With few sightings, no new books, and no one to guide would-be UFO spotters, interested, interest in the Warminster thing soon disappeared. Today, the town is still regarded by some as the UFO capital of the UK, with reported UFO sightings as recent as 2017. Though more than 50 years have passed since these strange events began, there is still no theory to explain the origin of the Warminster thing. Huh. That's crazy shit. Yeah. And the picture that I saw is is pretty nuts. It's it's definitely like classic UFO uh like a saucer. Yeah, yeah. You know, like a like the ball top with like the saucer around it. Like your classic Mars crazy. attacks kind of situation. Exactly. Exactly. But it all started that Christmas day in 1964. Now, off of uh, list verse, there is a more accurate description of what Margaret By, the lady who was struck down going to church Christmas morning by the sound. Let me go ahead and read it. So while walking to church... Marjorie Bai was so overwhelmed by vibrating noises that she was knocked to the ground and rendered unable to move. In her own words, she was pinned down by the invisible fingers of sound, is how she is quoted to have described the event. Which is pretty crazy, like invisible fingers of sound forcing her to the ground and pinning her there. Yeah, that's not... That's that's not neighborly at all. No, and I mean, if it was just that incident, one could write it off as, you know, just, I don't know, who knows? So, something probably explainable, but then there was all those people who said that they heard all these crazy pounding sounds on their roof. And it's so loud, it sounded like someone was, like, ripping all their tiles off and then hammering them back on. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty fucking crazy. The army base reporting it sounded like somebody like just d demolished a chimney, you know, and the bricks falling all over the place. But but none of them actually reported any actual damage, just very loud sounds that sounds. sounded like they were making a lot of damage. Yeah, that's uh, 
That's something else. I, I don't know. Like, how do you explain that sort of thing? Like, it was fucking right. aliens because what the fuck else? I know it. It does seem pretty unusual. I'm. I'm pretty. I'm pretty convinced it was probably aliens. I don't know what else it could be. Yeah. And then the fact that there were all the sightings, like, within a few months. Like, first, they, but before they saw anything, like, hearing all that crazy (laughs) stuff. And and not only hearing hearing it, but feeling it. You know, this crazy sound that just knocks this lady to the ground and pins her there. Yeah, that sounds, that would be terrifying. Yeah. Like, how do you, like, just fucking reconcile that as a person? <laughs> right? It was probably a relief once uh, the people started seeing, like, flying saucers. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Like, oh, good. A few months later, like, oh, okay, now I get what happened. Fucking aliens. Yeah. Oh, fucking aliens. Well, I have one more article to read about Greek Christmas goblins. Oh, wow. Okay. This is from GreekerThanTheGreeks.com. They're called the Kalikantzaroi. What are Kalikantzaroi? Kalikantzaroi, or Kalikantzaros, singular, are mischievous Greek goblins, elves, or gnomes. They come up to the surface of the earth during the 12 days of Christmas from the end of December, when the sun will not move again, until the 6th of January, Epiphany, where they cause all sorts of trouble and mischief. These 12 days are also known as the winter solstice, and in medieval times, Yule or Yuletide. For the rest of the year, they live at the center of the earth, where they spend their time using a large saw to cut down the world tree, or the tree of life that holds up the world. Kalikantzaroi are said to be small, black, and male, mostly blind with long black tails. They speak with a lisp and eat small creatures such as worms, snails, and frogs. They only come out at night and are afraid of the sun, fire, and holy water. They enter houses any way they can, through windows, down chimneys, through keyholes, and in any cracks they may find in walls and around doors. Once inside, they cause havoc. Rather than being evil demons, they are considered impish and stupid. Various stories of creepy Christmas imps and demons from other cultures may have been them, appearing on the Twelfth Day as werewolves and witches, etc. Their names and games. In Greek folklore, there are lots of these mischievous, troublesome little imps known as Kalkantzaroi, maybe up to 20, and furthermore, they all have their own names and traits. Below are some listed depending upon, you know... On which story you read, the names may differ slightly. Catechanus. Catechanus can't stop eating. He can't get enough and eats everything in sight. He also stinks something awful. Magaras. Magaras is a, has a big, fat, drum-like belly and leaves terrible, filthy, filthy smells all over people's food. Malaganus. Malaganus is a slick one. He craves attention and will do anything to get it. He deceives children with sweet words, enabling him to filch their sweets from them. Montracucus, or Patros, or Kautsos, the chief. Stocky, short-legged, clumsy, ugly, and dangerous to know. He hides away all day, and at night he goes out and teases women. What a dick. I know, right? <laughs> Kopso Mesitis. 
Copsomocytis is a lame hunchback with a weakness for pancakes and honey. Malapardas. Malaparda. If housewives forget to make sure lids are on pans while cooking food, Malapardas will grab that chance to urinate over what's, cook what's cooking. What is shit? Yeah. Oh my god. Covovelonis. Covovelonis is as long as a string of macaroni with a tail that ends in an arrow and can easily pass through keyholes, sieves, and colander holes. He's extremely agile and fast in his movements. Peroitis. Peroitis has a long, soft nose like an elephant. He shows up shortly before the rooster crows and has a great talent of mimicking people's voices. Catsipodiris or Megas Calicantzaros. Goatfoot. Goatfoot is the boss. Vicious, miserable, rude, lazy, and bald with a goat's leg. Not a pretty picture. Wherever he goes, he brings disaster. Planetarium. Deceives people because he has the ability to transform into an animal. Slot. Slot has one short arm and one long arm. He often becomes terribly confused and falls about all over the place. Vatracucos. A large is huge and just looks like a frog. It's just a big frog. Copsa Chelius is huge wide teeth with teeth which hang over his lips. He likes to make fun of priests, and that's why he usually wears a fake priest's hat. And then there is uh, Peganos or Protos or Megalos. He's lame, uh, said to have be become so from a kick from Meros's donkey, a village girl who was once chased by him. He wanted to make her his wife, but she hid in the bags of flowers she had loaded on her donkey and managed to escape. How to protect yourself from Calacantzaroi. It's said that if you, have, if you leave a colander on your doorstep at night, the Calacantzaroi, who can only count to two, consider the number and consider the number three holy, will kill themselves before pronouncing it, will spend all night counting the holes. I see. Uh, they will only ever reach the number two and start again so as not to utter the word three. So they'll say one, two, one, two, yeah. At sunrise, they disappear without having had time to cause any mischief because they're too busy counting. Another form of protection is to mark your door with a, a black cross on Christmas Eve. Uh, yet another is to burn a smelly shoe on the fire. The foul smell will keep them away. That sounds pleasant. Yeah. I can't wait to do that. Now, here is an interesting bit. To stop the Calacantzaroi from coming down the chimney, a large log is found and burnt for 12 days until the 6th of January, when the Calacantzaroi will go back to the center of the earth. This ties into the Norse, Norse tradition of Yuletide, the Yule log burnt for the duration of the winter solstice until the sun is on the move again. In Greek folklore, the Calacantzaroi are frightened away on the 6th of January, Epiphany, by Greek priests who go through all the houses blessing with them with holy water splashed around with a bunch of fresh basil. So it's, uh, a little bit like the Yule Lads, really. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't this like the the fucking guys from like our last episode? It was like each one had a, a weird thing that they did. Yeah, but I mean, these are ancient. I mean, this is Greek stuff, so I'm sure this was well before, you know, the other Probably. Stuff. I mean, Maybe the Yule Lads were based off of these guys. More than likely. More than likely. Because there was one, it would always, like, you know, steal food from any, like, pot, and then, I don't know, there's one thing about, like, a thing with shoes. Can't remember what it was, but, uh, yeah. I was like, oh, wait, this sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is, it's very familiar. <laughs> These little fuckers and their, their weird little pranky fetishes. Fucking bullshit. Little fucking yeah. assholes. 
fucking pissing in people's food. Yeah, Gross. that's just fucking rude as shit. And then the other one just making it all fucking stinky. Yeah, that sounds just shitty. Just they're just yeah. shitty little shits. What they are. Well, I think that is about what we have for you this time. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you would like to hear more, you can subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash strangerthanpodcast, where for $2 a month, you can get ad-free regular episodes, and for $5 a month, you can get a bonus true crime episode every month. Uh, yes, because this is our last episode of the year, yeah, actually. Yeah, that's right. You won't... Except for those who have the Patreon subscription, because we do have the December true crime episode coming up still. That's right. You can take a look at the podcast syndicate we're a part of, ageofradio.org. Our specific little part of that website is ageofradio.org slash stranger than, where you can listen to our episodes. And I think that's about it. You can email us, strangerthanpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear your stories about anything wacky, aliens, Bigfoot, vampires, uh, you know, fucking black-eyed children. Uh, anything. We'd love to hear your stories. Mischievous we'd to... Christmas demons. Yeah, mischievous Christmas demons. We'd love, we'd love to hear your stories and, and share them uh, with or without your name, of course. And I think that's about it. So I guess have a happy holidays and we'll talk to you next time. Yeah. Merry everything. Happy everything. We'll talk to you in 2022 and stay strange. <laughs>